Welcome to Arc Next Sessions, episode 34. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. We have two interviews to share on this week's episode. First, we'll be talking to Nick Taylor in London, co-founder and director at Squint Opera, a creative agency that many architects are already familiar with. We briefly referred to them last week as the creators of the video presenting Big's design for the new Two World Trade Center. Next, we'll speak with McShane Murnane, co-founder and architecture director of Project M+, an LA-based collective of designers and architects. We'll also be touching on some of the bigger news this week, including the unfortunate news that just arrived in our office about the passing of Charles Correa. How's everyone's week? Donna, how's your week? Good, good. We had our monthly AIA meeting for Indiana last month, uh, last week, Thursday night down in Columbus, Indiana, which it surprises me, but some people don't really know that Columbus, Indiana is this hotbed of modern design, thanks to the Erwin Miller of the Cummins Engineering Company offering to pay the fees of architects from around the world to come and design buildings, public buildings in the city. So we have buildings there by all of the greats. And some people just may not know this, but so this last Thursday, we had our AI meeting there and the meeting was in the city, the Columbus City Hall building by SOM. And it was done, it was designed by Charles Bassett of SOM back in the, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the date, but we just gave it a 25 year award. The AI Indiana just gave it a 25 year award. So two architects from the firm of SOM in San Francisco came out and gave a talk about the building while we were sitting in the building. And it's an amazing, amazing piece of, of early or, or sort of late modernism. And uh, it was great to hear this 80 some year old architect who had worked on the building originally. He really liked it and you could tell he was proud of it. And he would just make these little sayings like, you know, we, we decided we wanted these doors to all open towards the center space and to all be wood. And, and I think it turned out really nice. He just kept saying little things like that. Like, I think that works pretty well. And you could tell he was really proud of it. It just made me feel like, yeah, I want to be able to be in my eighties and look back on something and go, yeah, that, that holds up. It's really worth it. So it, it was a great evening. Lots of architects, lots of designers from the city of Columbus, where just everyone in the city is interested in design because they're surrounded by these great buildings by Saarinen and I am pay everyone. So that was a nice event this week to go to. Very cool. Ken, how was your week? Oh, it's been hellish. Not cool. <laughs> not good. No, it's it's not. You know, there's always been this talk on the on the board on Arconnect about all-nighters in school. And the one thing I will always tell people is that when you're a single person working for yourself, you really, and time management doesn't mean anything because your expectation around what should happen is totally messed with by other people's agendas and other people's timelines. So it was about 10 days ago and um, I had to put the documents together for this project, uh, the butcher project in less than, in about 10 days. So, cause I'm flying out to uh, the East coast tomorrow. So I've been up since Friday until about 3am every night working on this project. So, and I, I don't terribly mind too much because I had the prep in school. So I'm at least cognizant of the, what it does and what I need out of that. So what I started doing the past couple of nights is I would, I did a two in a row for jujitsu <laughs> and uh, sucking in all the oxygen while I'm at jujitsu after doing these ridiculous hours for this project actually helped put some oxygen back in my bloodstream and wake me up <laughs> that in the, yeah, that in, um, three or four 16 ounce cold presses. So yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> going to crash on the plane tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Sleep on the plane. If you can, you got to catch up that kind of stuff. Yeah. Really sleep deprivation does a number on 
on your brain and your body. I feel like I'm going through that right now. Ken, have you ever considered the um, the two sleep phase standard of sleeping where you go to bed at like sundown for three or four hours and you wake up in the middle of the night, you do something, stoke the fire, I guess was the initial thing. And then you would go back to sleep and then wake up in the sun rose. Have you ever done that? I've heard of that. I know I've, I've actually heard of that. And I think that's a great thing to try. Usually what I've done is, um, and I'll probably do after this, I'm, uh, after done, I'm going to take a nap for about an hour. Uh, I have to go see a physician after that and then uh, come home and work till about two or three and then get up. Well, I might not even get up. I might just stay up because I still have to pack um, oh, man. and my flights. <laughs> you have an early, I have a, I have a 650 flight, so I need to get to the airport by oh, yeah. five five thirty. Yeah, so. you're not sleeping tonight. But you know, it feels so good to meet a deadline and then get on a plane. Oh my God, that's one of the best feelings in the world is to meet that deadline and have it out the door. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I was busy tackling some things, getting them out of the way. And, um, you know, I think the difficult thing is I hate specifications and I'm putting some specs on this project and they're just kind of not to what I don't like doing that, putting them in a, a drawing sheet. I'd rather have a spec book and I'm not really good at specifications, but the architect I'm working with, I'm what I'm doing is it's essentially going to be done, but I'm giving him, because he's architect of record, um, giving him an opportunity to review and comment. And then I come back next week, finish up with the comments put it all together, get it out, and then issue it a dentist probably shortly thereafter. I've got some time to buy on the, I've got some time built in, or they're going to have some time built in. They're supposed to sign the lease and hopefully they've signed the lease today. And hopefully they signed my contract today. But it's been so busy here in Minneapolis that there's a project I'm working at in my office right now. The building permit was issued three weeks ago and they still haven't yet to uh, issue the plumbing permit. And we need to get the slab poured, everything. Every All the plumbing is in under the slab and we need to pour the slab and we need to get the project done before Labor Day. So, and they still haven't issued a plumbing permit. So at that that holds everything up. So I've explained to the client that, um, yeah, the expectation of you turning the project around quickly is probably not going to happen just based on what I'm hearing from, you know, anecdotally from the city around permits. So it's a bit of a challenge. It's a nice one to have, but how about you, Amelia? Well, I have been sick for the better part of the last week, so I'm Aww. I'm now coming out of it and extremely glad that it is leaving me. But it meant for a very, or it made for a very low key weekend. I was basically just watching Netflix for the entire weekend, which is I'm convinced will soon become an actual prescription. It's like you go to a doctor and says like, you know what, you really don't need anything. You don't need any pharmaceuticals, but you do need to like force yourself into a media stupor. So just watch all of these things on Netflix and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. Did you I'm, watch Orange is the New Black? I did. I did. How and far I'm, along are you? I'm about halfway through. It's awesome. Pretty great. Pretty great. But I'm so bored with myself. I was talking to a friend earlier defending Orange is the New Black against these other shows like Breaking Bad or Mad Men. And just to say, like, it's a great group caricature portrait. Like you have these famous Renaissance paintings of this group portraits of there's like so much happening at once. So many people interacting, um, so many individual characters that are kind of given their own space. And I think that's what the show does best is it just kind of gives a respectful narrative and also and conflict to each individual character without really bogging down the show, which is pretty impressive given how many characters are involved. And it without making anything of its supposed main character. The main character is probably like the least in interesting person on the show. But yeah, I mean, you will only learn so much about how terrible the American prison system is by watching this this series. It's not exactly, I think it's kind of burned out its um, social justice value for now, but it's still super, super fun to watch. Well, you know, what it did for me is that, uh, especially this season, you know, I know we're not a podcast about TV shows, but I thought I was telling Linda that 
it's so easy to look at people in prison and discard them as subhuman and not recognizing the complexity of their lives and some of the circumstances that you find some of these characters in. You have a hard time understanding why they're even in prison. And then you start to think about things that are happening currently in the news and realizing that there are a lot of people who are, are unable to afford good, decent attorneys and have to rely on public defenders. And sometimes there was a story about a young man in New York City who was accused of stealing something and refused to plead guilty. Um, the New Yorker did a piece on him and he refused to plead. He was in jail for three years because he would not plead and he did not have money for a, a real attorney. And the judge kept telling him, we'll, we'll let you out of jail. All you gotta do is plead guilty. And he said, I'm not gonna plead guilty to something I didn't do. And then a couple of weeks ago, after you know being in jail for three years, Getting out, finally, they finally realized, you know, what was going on. They let him out. He never really recovered. He um, suffered from terrible mental illness and wound up hanging himself a couple of weeks ago. So if anything, it just makes these people, it makes the situation, I think, a little bit more real. You know, I'm part of that problem. I would I would look at someone who's in jail and kind of casually dismiss them as they deserve to be in jail. They're there, so they must be, they must be, you know. So, but that show is kind of, it's kind of done that for me. Well, and then there's people that deserve to be in jail and they're not because of their financial situation. Like, I don't know if you guys saw The Jinx on HBO, the miniseries about Robert Durst. Heard about it, but didn't watch it. I mean, he committed, I mean, he finally, and within, during the filming of it, you know, he did admit while he was in the bathroom and he didn't realize his microphone was still on from the interview, he did admit to these grotesque, murderous killings. Yeah. And, but throughout the, throughout this documentary, it was just, you know, it really just addressed how he was able to get away with it because he was, he's filthy rich and he has the means to hire lawyers that can get him off with murder. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Paul, how are you doing? Good. Speaking of murder, uh, <laughs> I, I, I did my homework and uh, watched Mad Max last night, which Good. was pretty mind blowing. I have to say the one thing that just that has stayed with me is I just looked him up on on like a Mad Max wiki. His name is Coma Doof Warrior, and he's the guy that is playing the flame blowing electric guitar on on the uh, <laughs> the Doof Warrior mobile. And it was just so cool. It's, it's like so amazing. It's like a metal album cover come to life. It is. It is very much so. The way that it's filmed with that kind of sped up choppy frame rate that I think uh, you guys have mentioned in the past. It's just, it creates a really visually stunning effect. But the uh, background story behind the Coma Doof Warrior is just as interesting. Do you know what his whole story was? He has a story. Of course he has a story. He grew up in a happy house. His, he was a musician and his mother was a musician. And one day his mother was taken from him and murdered and her head was dropped into his lap as a young child. So the mask that he's wearing in the movie is actually the mask made from his mother's what? face. Paul, is this your own Mad Max fan fiction coming no, to the podcast this or is, is this this is legitimate? This uh, is real information taken from the Mad Max wiki. <laughs> So that that just adds a whole other complex layer to that character. Um, Who is otherwise only seen in the film playing electric, electric guitar with flame coming yeah. out of it. Yeah. It's funny. I watched it with a few friends. And after we were just kind of all, you know, standing around, minds blown. And we were, we were joking around like, what, is, what are we going to say when we get home and our wives ask us what the movie was about? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how do you describe what that was about? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's a great mo action movie because it doesn't really have, its plot is so short in terms of like conflict and resolution. It just is like, the conflict is that a bunch of ladies are kidnapped for the greater good. And then there's this horrible society that is this horrible ruler that is taking advantage of everyone. And then it all turns out. See, fine. see after you hear that, you don't need to see the movie. <laughs> yeah. You got it. 
So yeah, that was <laughs> that was about it for me. But now, did did you guys see the original Road Warrior with Mel Gibson? Yes. So long ago, I can't remember any of it. I mean, to me, it it felt like the plot made perfect sense. That was, you know, it was what was going on in that movie, just continued into the next year or whatever. So yeah, I don't know. I, I love them as together. The, the Thunderdome one can be tossed out, but the Mad Max Road Warrior and this one can all be a great trilogy. I was surprised to learn that it was the same director. I didn't realize. Same director that did the original Mad Maxes and this new Mad Max Fury Road. And then also, of course, Happy Feet 1 and Happy Feet 2. Don't forget, <laughs> don't forget Babe Pig in the City. And Babe Pig, well, Babe Pig in the City, I fully endorse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So speaking of awesome movies. Oh, well, that's Donna's editorial flavor coming in. <laughs> but we did recently talk with uh, Nick Taylor, who is one of the founders and the director of Big's World Trade Center 2 film. Yeah, and we spoke with Nick while he was in his studio in London just the other day about a little bit about the, uh, the origin story behind Squin Opera. It's a visualization company that's achieved international success, kind of based originally in working directly with architects. It kind of blossomed out of Will Alsop's uh, studio, and they still work directly with a lot of top architects around the world, especially Big, who they've done a few projects with, and this one being one of the more publicly recognizable pieces. So should we go ahead and listen to that conversation now? Let's do it. So can you just begin by maybe telling us the origin story of Squint Opera? Well, uh, Squint was started by four friends, or one guy in particular. I don't know if you know the architect, Will Allsop. He's one of the pa- one of the founding partners is Will Allsop's son. And so Ollie and another guy called Martin initially started making a film to explain one of Will Allsop's projects. And then it, it, it quickly formed that two other people joined, Alice and Jules. And they were all basically helping Will explain his projects. And so it's all, I guess Squint had this kind of very lucky situation. A, because Will Allsop's a very good and experimental sort of architect. And he gave Squint in its earliest days this kind of opportunity to experiment with filmmaking. Uh, Ollie and Alice were both at the Bartlett School of Architecture, which is one of the kind of the more kind of experimental architecture schools in in London. And and they were, you know, they've within that school they're always exploring this kind of relationship between architecture and film, which I think you know you'll see a lot of kind of writing about how architecture and film have always kind of related to each other and so they had this kind of uh, this, these early days this ability to experiment with uh, with some of will's projects and started initially doing a lot of work with northern city northern in england city regeneration projects so there was kind of it was just after the, the 90s and uh, there's a new sort of labor government and a lot of the, the towns up north which had been kind of abandoned after the kind of you know industrial sort of heartlands of northern england started getting uh you know losing all of their kind of industry and the labor party was starting to kind of re-inject investment into northern cities and lots of these cities were sort of thinking about how they were going to regenerate and uh, all that kind of stuff and so will was involved in lots of these projects and we were making films basically a, a, to address the kind of public of those cities and get them to engage with these ideas about what their cities could be so we were making films that would be shown in cinemas before feature films or, you know, in various other different sort of media so that people would try and encourage locals for these cities to sort of join the debate about what would become of their cities. So we did a project for Bradford and for Gateshead and and various different cities, uh, Leeds, uh, and that kind of gave birth to the studio. And then obviously we started branching away and set up our own sort of studio away from Will Allsop's studio and... Yeah. So the work of your of Squint Opera uh, was formed 
within the architecture and kind of urban planning world, correct? Correct. Yeah, it was very, very much so. Like e- even like of the kind of of the directors, three out of three of us. Uh, well, there, there were four kind of guys that started it, and I had like a separate company, and we later merged about two years after Squint was formed, and and one of them left, and so there's four of us that have kind of grown the business, and of those four, three of us studied architecture. Even today, probably about uh, half of the people that are in our studio studied architecture at university. So we've got a mixture of skills, some of them in film production and some of them in architecture and a few other bits and pieces. But generally, our, the, the staff come from those two different backgrounds, either architecture or uh, or film. What are the skills that people in your office bring to the work at Squin Opera from architecture that contribute to you know, a successful visualization? What, what do you mean? If someone's trained in architecture, what, what does that bring them to the work we do? Yeah. Well, I mean, we do a lot of work. For instance, I mean, like the most kind of obvious way is we often do big projects. So like big master plan projects about cities or, or what have you, which unlike the kind of the big Gotham one, involve a lot of buildings that haven't been designed yet. So someone might come to us and say, we've got here, we've got four square kilometers of city, which hasn't been built. We've got a kind of road layout and a kind of massing study. And we want to kind of make this film, which shows it as it might look in 20 years time sort of thing. And so in there, there's an enormous amount of actual design that we have to do. The other thing is, is if you're the creative director of a project and you've been asked by someone to make a film about their project, they want someone, you know, an architect basically knows about how to design a building. They don't necessarily know how to make a story and a film about that building. So it's good if you're the director of a film about a building that you kind of have an intuitive understanding about how a building is special, how it works or, you know, all of the kind of architectural facts about a building and in coming up with a, a story or a way of filming that, you know, you want to have that kind of crossover of skills where you understand the architectural side of things and the, the film side of things. So obviously there are lots of other film companies that sometimes delve into architectural visualization, but they don't have the speciality skills that we have and the kind of sensitivity towards architecture that companies like Squint Opera have. Obviously, we're not the only one, but there are a few companies, that, production companies that specialize in architectural projects. Well, your work has expanded outside of the architecture industry. Is the process involved when visualizing work by architects much different than the process involved when working with other industries? Our, our processes evolved in architecture. And I guess it's difficult to say for sure, but I guess our processes have, have evolved doing what we did in architecture. And that gives us a, a kind of um, a different perspective on things that we kind of bring to other projects. So I don't I don't know if necessarily we do things exactly the way that other people do, but you know, any company has a kind of provenance and it evolves in a certain way. And that gives that company a certain sensitivity. But like, so for instance, we do lots of stuff now in the exhibition sector and that the work we do in the exhibition sector and museum sector evolved out of the work we do for architecture. So they are very different in terms of what you're creating, but I guess somehow we've made it evolve out. And we've always found that because we've come at it from a different angle of a lot of people, that gives us a kind of a new and interesting perspective on it. Well, your work in particular for this recent video for the Second World Trade Center Tower designed by Becca Ingalls Group, it seems to have a real thematic and stylistic connection to some of the earlier visualizations that have come out of Big's office, but that you weren't necessarily involved on. So I was wondering, while that video also balances the input from 20th Century Fox, which is, of course, one of the major shareholders in this project and tenant in the one of the buildings in the Second World Trade Center Tower. So I was wondering, how did you work with both specifically with Bjarke Ingels in starring in this video and also directing the creative direction of it while also balancing the interests of 20th Century Fox? 
Actually, you know, we've worked with Big a few times. Um, when you say like uh, it correlates to some of his previous, but I guess you mean the way in which you look mm-hmm. at massing and, uh, yeah. and that kind of stuff. So specifically the movement of kind of imagined drawing, drawing with the hands in an invisible way and then it animating to life in the actual real world and then projecting that visualization onto the uh, otherwise normal filmed environment. Yeah, I know he's very, and his architecture is very, you know, take a shape twist it and extrude it and play with it and so until it kind of fits your brief and your criteria so i think that came out of working with him and that's the way they think about architecture and the way they design it and so that kind of comes out of it although i'd say the beginning of the project we weren't going to have that kind of more massing explanation thing and but just through through working through it with big with the team at big it kind of ended up being like that because i think they were very keen to explain very explicitly what the massing was doing so you know so we ended up going there so that's i think that's definitely um the big office's input is it it comes from that wanting to explain the process the with 21st century fox actually they didn't have a massive amount of input into it we were certainly sort of sending stuff past them. We have quite a close working relationship with Bjark Ingels and uh, and do more and more work with him, do quite a few projects with him. And, and it's sort of building up more and more of a relationship. And he was the one that kind of got us the job and, and you know, encouraged Silverstein and, and 21st Century to get us on board. And, and was was they were definitely the people that had most contact with us. And we had we had more contact actually with Silverstein, who, who helped us organise things. And sort of, I never actually met face-to-face anyone from 21st Century Fox. We had like a Skype conversation with them where we had a kind of um, a big sort of brainstorm. I guess our job was very much trying to sort of find a, a happy ground between all these different sort of parties. So you've got 21st Century Fox who weren't that much involved, but obviously you had concerns about representing News Corp and, and stuff in, in an appropriate way. And and I guess their, their concerns were also about you know, what the place was like from the inside. And then you had Silverstein, who obviously were, have got this kind of much bigger interest in the whole of the World Trade Center site, and but obviously just want 21st Century Fox and News Corp as a tenant. And then Big, who were kind of, you know, breaking their project to the world. And I guess it's probably Big's big break really isn't it if, if this project goes well it's like another level of kind of massive project for them even though they've done the google thing but especially kind of yeah you don't really get more high profile than than a world trade center tower do you? yeah we discuss it here um at Arconnect. it seems like it may be some kind of the biggest news of the year not only in the counting the um trajectory of Big's office, but in terms of winning projects, like this is really, yeah, one of the most high profile to be imagined. So I was wondering, based on what you just said, both what it was your prior working history with Big, if you could talk a little bit about that, and then um, how you approached the uh, World Trade Center Tower project. Um, we can maybe get into that a little bit later, but first, you, if you could talk about your prior working history with Big. The first job with them was a job in Miami. Uh, it was for a convention center in Miami. And uh, we just made a video and it was all kind of, it was an entirely 3D video actually explaining that project. I don't know if you know about it at all. Then we've done, we did some bits and pieces for the Google complex, the Google campus, although it wasn't the way that we normally work because we just did some specific shots and gave them to an edit team that Google was doing to incorporate into a film that they were working on. And we've done the big U, the dry line for New York. Do you know that film? Yes. So we did that one. Yeah. And the moment one of our directors is working from New York and looking to set up a studio. Well, she's got a desk space in Big's office at the moment. It's fascinating that you ask whether we know that you did these projects, because of course we're familiar with these videos. But I think that oftentimes the 
relationship between an, a firm or a, a creative project and the material that comes out that kind of prepares people for that product that shows them what it's going to be about and serves as the explanation device, people automatically assume that that separate creative product is part of the architect's work or is somehow absolutely directed under them. And while we get a lot of conversation around the side devoted to these high profile projects, just because they, of course, are high profile projects, we also get a lot of people speculating about kind of the marketing intentions around these projects and how they assume that, of course, it's the architect's will and the architect is the one, you know, waving the wand over these things. Uh, yeah, just looking at some of the sort of the commentary on blogs after the things, obviously the blog commentaries are pretty, um, you know, you get, it tracks a kind of negativity, mm -hmm. but they're often sort of targeted at, you know, Bjarke just wants to be in the front of the camera or whatever. But during the process of filming, the, uh, you know, he's just kind of following around, sort of waiting around. It's not, it's, it's not a very sort of glamorous process. And, uh, and it was, you know, he was sort of being directed by us, I guess. Speaking of the World Trade Center visualization project that you worked on, what was the main message that, that you were trying to communicate with that video? I'll tell you what, actually, it's it slightly changed. And you can probably, now that I say it, you'll see this in the video. Because like earlier on, it was going to be more about, I, I guess they were thinking of it more as a, kind of, a slightly less public film. And there was certain sort of concerns about you know, how, how to represent the exterior of the building. And that, you know, as the project went on, they became more concerned about it was going to be much more about a public launch and and therefore we had to sort of showcase the ex outside of the building more explicitly so you know that the bit where you're sort of spiraling up through the middle of the building most of those are all interior scenes because they'd all been sort of set by that stage and we were kind of just at that stage we really wanted to show how kind of full of diversity and and life the interiors of the buildings were so I, actually did did anyone send you this clip well, this thing that I wrote about the creative treatment that we did or how the creative evolved throughout the process. I think because I, I wrote something up for something else. Did John Harris ever send that to you? No, but please do send it over to us and then we can include it in the show notes and we can share it with our audience. Because it explains like the, the first creative we did was about this idea that New York is a place where people from all over the world came to America and, and it's this very diverse city with lots of different people and that somehow in the same way that the, the building is made up of these blocks we're kind of like a, a cluster of village blocks kind of a vertical village that that kind of concept and um, each of the blocks has got all these different activities in it and you know there's film studios and basketball courts and then different businesses and all kind of stacked on top of each other so it was kind of like at one stage we were thinking should we make this film it's like a giant cross-section and you're moving up through the cross-section because the cross-section of the building looks much more diverse and interesting than the exterior of it did well that's what we we kind of were thinking at the time so we came up with this idea of like a camera spiraling up through the building cutting through floor stabs and seeing all these different kind of activities that happened inside and that movement of spiraling was going to start out in coney island and new jersey and then move through all the streets of new york and sort of spiral in towards the building and then kind of up, up through the building and out the top but it was a bit more kind of abstract. And then we decided that we needed to explain the, the, the massing concepts of the building much more clearly. So we, hence, we sort of, we changed that whole beginning section to have this kind of uh, Bjarka moving from location to location, explaining how the life of Tribeca and the kind of the more formal pensive spaces and the more kind of like corporate spaces in, in the sort of downtown area come together to form this building and all these kind of different aspects go together to make the building. So this building in particular also has a huge presence, not only in the New York skyline, but in the entire nation's history and global history. And we're wondering how 
it felt for you to come into this project to try to represent and kind of be one of the first um, images that goes towards people's understanding of what will replace or what will go on to this very loaded site. So how was it working um, on a project with such a tragic and loaded history? Oh, it, was, it was a massive honour, really. I know we were all really excited. We love working with Big. Uh, and we have a really good relationship where they sort of trust us. So any project that we get from Big, we're always sort of bang up for. And uh, But obviously this you know, World Trade Centre was a massive, massive thing. Also, it's just one of those sort of chats to get something that's so emotionally loaded. It's, you know, it's just one of those real challenges that we all kind of relish because of, yeah, going back to all those kind of films that we did for Northern City Regeneration Projects, it's those kind of human engagement things that we, that is, that's where we started. And those are the types of architectural projects that we like the most. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today and thanks for talking to us, Nick. I think we're really excited to see actually how the not only the architecture project continues and how it actually comes to fruition, but to see more work that you do. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot, Nick. And thanks for taking an interest in our, in our stuff. Absolutely. Keep us updated on new work. We'd love to share it with our audience. So Donna, did you get a chance to watch that video? I watched the video immediately when it was announced last week and loved it, felt totally in love with it. I was so happy that you guys were able to to talk to Nick so shortly after that, that uh, I endorsed the video so strongly on the podcast last week. I think it's so well done. And I have to agree again with Fred Sharman, who said that it's just, it's a perfect collection of signifiers. I mean, it, it sort of hit me in all the places that I know it's programmed to hit me you know it looked gorgeous spaces the music was inspiring the the it just everything about it i thought was perfectly glisteningly well done the thing i got out of the interview was it was interesting to hear nick talk about having to direct bjarki and i just want to point out that everyone sort of laughs about bjarki being this um you know so appealing and so people just can't he's irresistible he's uh radically adorable is the way one writer described him but it, it, that's a skill to come across on camera that interestingly and that believably so i, I mean it, it you know there are people who are great designers and just fall totally flat at the selling of their work and then there are people who can who can do both and i think bjarki even with nick's direction saying do it this way and you know, lean this direction and, and gesture this way. You know, Bjarki can sell his own work as well. So, but I, I thought the video was fantastic. I loved it. What do you think of the video, Ken? You know, first, I, I just want to say I, I'm, com I'm coming around to the project. I'm, I'm starting to, as it sits with me more and more, I see it and I saw the video. Seeing the building, it made more sense to me what was going on. The problem I have with the video is it just seemed, I'll just say it, it seemed a little tone deaf in terms of, look, the reason why these buildings are under construction and being built is because a tragic, a destructive thing, a tragic thing happened at this site. And there's no connection to the that realization. I mean, we have shots looking across the memorial site, but there's there's such an optimism around it that it just didn't really kind of reflect any of the, the sorrow the, uh, by virtue of, you know, this building is being built because something happened that, that scarred this city for eternity. And the, the kind of uplifting music, the kind of the whimsical music and the, and the, the money shots of people going up and down the elevator. It, I appreciate all that stuff as a designer, as an architect. And I think, you know, something along the lines of just acknowledging, you know, it just seemed too spirited in one particular direction without making that connection. And I thought that was a missed opportunity. I liked the way he diagrammed the building in space and did all that stuff. I thought that was kind of um, nice, but I just, I just felt it seemed a little off for me. 
Yeah. It's too bad that it's almost antithetical to bring stuff up like that and to fulfill the purpose of such a film, right? Because it's like you're selling an image of something and you're not trying to memorialize it at the same time. You're trying to make it like that new, exciting thing. And I think there was one line that Yarke refers to in the design and describing the design of the building that kind of explains like why one why the perspective from one direction is the way it is to kind of give supposed dignity or so to the memorial and to kind of reference that tragic past. But of course, like, you know, in this three minute video or however long it is, like trying to tackle an issue like that is just it's sometimes it's unfortunately just no space for it. But I have to kind of apologize because I made a pretty egregious error in the, in the interview with Nick. I referred to 21st Century Fox adamantly as 20th Century Fox because I was almost convinced that like they would keep that name for some reason, even though even if say this giant media corporation moves into the new millennia. So my bad, I guess I just I had a like a brain fart there. But um, in the overall video, I was just really happy to have a chance to speak with Nick and hear how he relates his work to architects in general, because they have such a long history of working with architects and work and have such strong work history with architects and representing architects. But I feel often the, the architectural discourse around things like this gets put on totally the creative onus of the architect. Like people are thinking, oh, Bjarka made a terrible video. And it's like, well, no, like it's a f false construct. It's like, you can't say that the architect is creatively responsible for this product that has not only so many other players in it, but has a legitimate, oh, its own creative engine behind it being, being Squint Opera. So kind of give credit where credit is due and also try to interpret. It reminded me that it's important to try to interpret authors and very specifically when dealing with these kinds of press objects and not loading all of the authority onto the single architect figure. But if you did take that single architect figure out of Big's existence, I don't think they would be as successful. That's true. If, if Big were not like, say Squint Opera was doing the exact same video, but and Foster was still attached to the project. I don't think you'd see Foster playing the same role. No. <laughs> so it's clearly, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's a dance. They, they're involved. But um, yeah, it's, I just feel it was important to kind of make focus on the thing that people often just shove aside and we're like, ah, oh, it's all Bjarka. It's all Bjarka magic. Mm -hmm. Amelia, I think you stumbled onto a blooper in the video, though, because the, the rolling screen and the up stairs uh, oh, viewing. Oh, does say 20th Century Fox? Says 20th Century Fox. Yeah. So I used to watch a lot of Futurama <laughs> as a kid. And I, and I always had a joke that at the end, because it was a it was a Fox, it aired on Fox, and it was a Fox yeah, thing. Yeah. And they would always have a joke at the end where it said 30th Century Fox, because it's supposed uh -huh. to take place in the year 3000. Yeah, and yeah. so I was just like, I, I I thought, you know, okay, so it's still 2000, we'll still be fine. I think that might just be attached to whichever media that they would supposedly be viewing. Or maybe there's some like legal speci specificity as to what they refer to 20th and 21st. But, but yeah, I think, Ken, that was one of the particular tricks in the film that you were probably alluding to about like where it's doing all the things, you know, you're supposed to be doing where they have like the screening screen go up. And behind it is the window washer who right. takes a bow, you know, like that right. kind of neatness right. or the guy who makes the ridiculous half court basketball shot. <laughs> it's like pretty absurd. Well, you know what it reminded me of when I saw the that that the screen go up and the guy was cleaning the glass there. For some reason, I don't know why, but the people always reminded me in that video. I was getting this feeling. You're familiar with the Sims game, right? You have these people mm -hmm. that speak the yeah. Sims language and they just kind of like they had those weird like. I don't know, Sims vibe. Like they were present, but like in another way, they were like not there. Like, hey, <laughs> it's just weird. It is. But I'm sure it will be a successful building. Yeah, we'll have to compare it. We'll have to compare the variety of people involved in the in the rendering to the reality of the people involved that actually inhabit the building or work in the building. We'll see if it even happens. I mean, the that's, World Trade yeah, Center, that site does have a history since 9-11 of getting people excited about something and then kind of doing a little bait and switch. That's true. 
So very true. I'm not holding my breath yet. So what else is in the news this week? It looks like uh, Elon Musk has uh, launched a Hyperloop pod competition to university students and engineers. Have you guys seen this? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. I have been following the Hyperloop news pretty closely, and I was really excited to see this formal competition being proposed, mostly because just the idea of like a hyper-futuristic experiment going on somewhere in California where I can only assume flaming designed pods go off the rail in pursuit of this crazy vision of Elon Musk's. I just think it's a really romantic prospect and it'll be really interesting to see what actual students and engineers and any anyone who enters this competition will be submitting because we also had on a previous podcast, we talked with a UCLA studio that is devoted entirely to the Hyperloop design. And because there are these engineering, let's call them details that don't need to be discussed yet that aren't totally solidified, that, that they could focus entirely on design aspects and just like the human experience of being in one of these things. And I think that's the most interesting prospect for different designers to interpret of like, we don't know, aside from maybe if you're an astronaut or (laughs) have gone through similar training, you probably don't know what that speed casually feels like. And so to try to get people (laughs) not only to buy into it as a commuting experience, but also buy into it as a just an absolute travel experience, like what it feels like to be in a in a pod like that. I think that's a huge challenge that I'm really interested to see the different interpretations of. Yeah, I think I'm most interested in seeing how the psychology of being inside this new type of vehicle will be addressed through the design of the pods. Because uh, psychologically, it's not going to be the easiest transition for people to get used to this type of transportation. Yeah, they can't have windows because it'll make people nauseous if they see things going by at that speed. And so they have to close it off. And then what do you do with people when they're closed off in a tube for 30 minutes? What do you think, Donna? First of all, I think that to figure some of that out, we could easily go back to historical data of when elevators were introduced. And how did people respond to an elevator? Because that was certainly an, a bizarre new way of moving when they first you know, introduced elevators into commercial buildings, I would think. There must be some kind of historical data on that. You know, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the Hyperloop. I think it, it seems fantastical and wonderful. I'm, I'm still really conflicted about SpaceX, which bless them for, for everything they've done so far. It's great to see this kind of technological advancement happen. But I'm still conflicted about the fact that it's coming from private industry rather than from government. You know, that I'm enough of a believer in government that I feel like it should be the government funding more directly this kind of research. And competitions make it fun for everybody. But again, I'm I'm just conflicted about it. That it's private industry making these huge advances rather than giving credit to the the ability of us as a as a community of people to make these kinds of advancements happen. So I, I'm a little conflicted, but overall excited. Yeah, I would say that especially in California, the context of like private versus public is in incredibly harshly cast because you have the California High Speed Rail project that is, you know, billions overdue and late and people are annoyed and that it should be more futuristic and all these things. And it is a really difficult case to make in the face of having like of the investment in public infrastructure when that investment has never been forthcoming. Ken, what do you think? You know, I I agree with Donna about the uh, public and the private side of this project. You know, but I think if you look at the rail system that started in this country, it really was a private a private That's process true. that so I, I I think there is a way to work together, but you know I yet to see that uh, happen in a way that I think Donna and I would appreciate. <laughs> the one thing that I thought was you know we we talk about it endlessly. At least I talk about it too. Is the the fact that we just I don't think we're 
taxed enough to handle the needs of this country. And, you know, that seems to be a fundamentally problematic issue for most people. You know, can I tell you one thing that's interesting that we're talking about this project and the video? We haven't really touched on the video. I and mean, the video is 14 seconds long, 14 seconds long. And it is exciting, 14 seconds. <laughs> Because it just sits, the camera never moves. You're not sure what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, this thing just flashes across the screen. And you're like, what just happened? And it goes from one side of the screen to the other. And by the time that thing is gone, and I'm like, I'm excited now. I mean, something about that that moment where you you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going to happen. You're just looking at it. And it's not really much of a video. But it's something, you know, it's just interesting how we can present, how two different groups of people can present something that is supposed to elicit some kind of reaction. And yet this one responds, I respond more to this one just because of, I still don't, there's an unknown that I don't, I can't quite wrap my mind around. And yet I'm excited to know more about it. Um, whereas the other one, there's just too much cuteness. And, and um, <laughs> if, again, like I said, about the site and all the other stuff going on with it. So, but I, I'm excited. I mean, I, when we talked to Craig, I was excited. And when you guys talked to Bjarke, I was excited. So we just need to, we need to get a Hyperloop system between LA, Minneapolis and Indianapolis. Yeah. Yes. Oh, then we can do the podcast all in, in the same room. Yeah. Or find the geographic midpoint between all those three places and build. Yeah, there you go. Well, on a less uh, spectacular and visionary note, we have uh, some sad news this week. Tadao Ando has just announced that he's been having multiple surgeries for cancer, which came as a surprise. I've seen him a couple times in the last couple of years, and both times he's been very upbeat and energetic. I mean, like 10-year-old level energetic. So really surprising to see that he's been struggling with with his health. One of the quotes that was included in the news, which was uh, a nice quote, I think representing his attitude towards life and architecture is, uh, people live as long as they're meant to. So we might as well take every effort we can until we die. What do you guys think? That was beautiful. I've never personally met Ando, but having like that image of him as like incredibly energetic and youthful, it, it does kind of make sense to me. And just his work ethic seems insane. And hearing this kind of personal news from an architect, I think is also just, I don't know, maybe it's something in the in the Japanese media, like the way the article is written and how you know exactly which organs and such were removed from his body in these surgeries. But I just think it was incredibly humanizing to hear him, you know, be accepting and and working with these um, this incredible conflict of being of being sick while also just being very like down to earth about it. Whereas I feel like maybe if this were in the American media, it might not be picked up in the same way. It might be a little bit more, yeah, sensationalist or if it were an American architect, something a little bit more Oprah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Something else would be made out of it. It would be, it would be used in a more um, manipulative fashion, but that's just me. I've been wondering if, you know, maybe this is why we've been um, hearing and seeing so much more of Ando in the last few years. I wonder if he, you know, has all of a sudden seen his own mortality and kind of began to, you know, expedite the completion of his life's work. Because I, I mean, up until maybe about five years ago, you really didn't see his name popping up in the media much at all. I mean, everyone in the architecture industry is familiar with him and his work, but he's been in the news a lot more recently with a lot of with a lot of new projects in in uh, new types of locations for his practice. Yeah, I wonder if he's doubling down on his work ethic in an effort to, you know, I mean, it's one thing to say what he said, but it's another to say, well, I'm quitting altogether and just going to let it take me. And it doesn't sound like, you know, uh, given the fact that he is a former pugilist and uh, I can't see him giving up too easily. So 
maybe that's what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Is that the best way to combat something is to dedicate your life to what makes you move forward. Yeah. Yeah. The quote that got me was the just being alive isn't sufficient. You know, that, that if for him, he needs to be doing his work. He needs to be doing the things that he wants to and is meant to be doing. And um, I feel like that's a really good attitude to take towards life. And I totally agree with you, Amelia, that the tone of the article was, to me, very beautiful and very calming. And having dealt with a couple of deaths recently, that the attitude of having a good attitude towards death, I think is uh, that it's just a blessing. It's a huge, hugely valuable to your quality of life to have a you know, a somewhat accepting attitude towards death. One uh, interesting story. When I, I met him for the first time a few years ago, when we interviewed him here in, in Los Angeles, I went with Orhan and Orhan and I interviewed him and Alex in our office came along and brought his wife, who is Japanese, and his wife, Kaori. I mean, he was, uh, Ando was just incredibly gracious and very kind. And we, it was just a really nice time that we spent with him. But he was speaking in Japanese because his English is very poor. And at the end, Kaori said, you know, the translator was really sugarcoating what he was saying. <laughs> I mean, some of the really? stuff he was saying was not, was, was not coming across nearly as positive as, as his uh, facial expressions were, were making it seem. So I've always been curious about what he was really saying and, and what was lost in, in that translation. Well, if it's anything like the personality that they kind of paint of him in this article of how he deals with like work communications and such, he doesn't really cut the bullshit. He's very, he's very straightforward. He has mm -hmm. stamps to tell people how he feels about their work, <laughs> whether he <laughs> approves or does not. That's right. Yeah, that's always, that's fascinating. He's a professional boxer. I mean, that's where he started. Yeah, amazing. Well, and on to more sad news. India's famous architect, Charles Correa, just died. And we actually just received news of this today, which is Wednesday, just before we started recording this podcast. So we don't have much to say about, about that news today, but we're hoping to kind of pull together some stuff to talk about next week on next week's show about his life and his legacy. Well, should we move on to our conversation with McShane? Yeah, let's go for it. We had McShane in our office a few weeks ago, actually. He's based here in Los Angeles in Silver Lake. It's a very Silver Lake type of practice that he runs. Really beautiful work addressing Silver Lake-like issues in his work, such as gentrification, which he talks about in, in our conversation. So let's uh, take a listen to that. So Project M Plus designs at a variety of scales and across different media. How do you see architecture as fitting within that scope of work that you work with him? Well, it's interesting that we have graphic design as a whole entity within the office. And that's my wife, Cleo. And so she drives that as its own operation. And so I drive the architecture side. And we have such a weird influence on each other, which is different than other probably architecture firms. And so it influences us in sort of jobs we take or want to take or looking for jobs that we can do this cross-reference and have the two disciplines that complete the job. For example, a restaurant project, we could do the build-out and hopefully the menus or the graphics, the logo, et cetera, or vice versa. We might get a restaurant project that says we want the branding and then it turns into the TI of that. So it's been fun to like navigate those waters. And you were trained as an architect, correct? Correct. I am all architect. I don't know anything about graphic design. So it's, it's fun because the vocabulary in the office is so different from one side to the other. So part of the influence is interesting where what they're talking about is similar, but very different. And the way they approach it mentally is different. And the way we approach it on the architecture side is different. So it's a good influence to understand. It's all design. It's all creative. It's all about space. 
but there's 3D space, 2D space, and how we're approaching the problems are very different. So going back a little bit, you founded Project M Plus in 2008. What led up to the formation of, of your practice? What were you doing before 2008? It had always been something, a goal to do. It's just the vision I think Cleo and I had. So, but working back, I was in school in Illinois and I ran up to Chicago right after to work. I think there were two places that always held my interest for architecture and one was Chicago and then definitely Los Angeles. And uh, not being from here, I'm from the Midwest and there's some kind of sexy, sunny version of LA that you know about and it's just a draw. I think in pop culture too, there's a draw to Los Angeles, whether it's music, TV. I mean, I could say it was chips, watching chips as a kid, you know, just the idea of these two guys on motorcycles, amazing. And Chicago, the same thing. Growing up in the Midwest, Chicago's a huge draw for what you see, smell, and hear as a city. And uh, I was born right after the Sears Tower went up. And I'm sure people were talking about this. And so I think this building had such an impact on what I wanted to do, and it just mesmerized me. So for me... Chicago was a good step. And then LA knowing if I was going to do something on my own, I think I had to be here to build stuff, to do stuff. I think it's different than in the East Coast. So when it first started, you didn't intend necessarily to have it be both a graphic design studio and architecture? Or did it, was did. that from the beginning? Yeah. Okay. So we, you know, I was working for a larger company building a project downtown called Concerto before the economy sort of exploded. And so it was kind of our vision to combine these two mediums and see how this 2D, 3D thing could work. Because I'd seen in offices where you might have an architecture firm and they could drag along some graphic design, but it never was really at the level that you would see that if it were just a graphic design, like wayfinding and signage and things like that. It's very specific. It's not easy to do. And even though on the surface, I think, yeah, I could figure that out as an architect. I could figure out how to do the wayfinding and come up with some graphic design, but it's not, it's, it's a lot harder than it looks. So how do we meld those things together for us was always a vision to do it. And that's part of the reason we named it M+. So M is for Mernan, which is our last name, but the plus is this additional, it's, it's open-ended. It's not about architecture necessarily, and it's not about just graphics. It's about all of it. It's design, it's combining ideas, things like that. You mentioned the, re the recession from our experience really hit the architecture industry in early 2009, which was a little bit after you started the practice. How did that affect your work? And did the non-architecture work that you did help support the practice during that time? Most definitely. So, you know, I was on a project that basically the funding disappeared. So I was working for a larger company where the banks actually took over. I'm sorry, the Fed took over the bank. And so the project was gone. So the moment was here, but there was no work in architecture. I mean, everyone was laid off. The banks weren't funding any kind of construction work. Everybody held on to their money. So it was a scramble. It was very tough, tough. Luckily, we had some really good clients on the graphic side that helped push us through that. But the architecture side, we scrambled to take whatever came our way. And it's interesting because now I have in the back of my head, there's that fear of, oh yeah, I remember that. That was tough. So it's good to have maybe had that in hindsight, but it was a struggle for sure. Yeah. I think it, everybody that worked through that last recession has that ongoing fear that the floor could fall, uh, out. fall out any minute because it, it happened this, pretty quickly. It did happen really quickly. Although in my project, uh, we were saying earlier where we had about a year, <laughs> we knew that it was going to die, but it just never did. So we were lucky to actually have it from 2008 to 2009. We kind of held on, but a lot of people were out of work after there were hundreds of people were on this project. It's a 28 story tower with a nine story parking garage and a seven-story loft building, but to hiring. So 
we've been looking for people right now as we're expanding at about five years of experience. And I have this idea or theory that they've left the profession because that would put them coming out of school around 2009, 2010. And it's been difficult to find five, six years. We're finding below that and above that. That's not an issue. But that mark, is it's interesting. So I don't know if people have left or... We've heard that too. And uh, one of our theories is that a lot of people, a lot of firms are looking for young architects with skills right out of school that, that some of the other more experienced architects don't have. And then also there are a lot of architects that are looking for, or a lot of firms that are looking for architects with experience. So there is that middle group, the ones that have, we've been seeing, you know, 10, 10 to 20 years experience that are having a harder time. But um, going back to your practice, you founded the, the company with your wife. Can you talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages that you've discovered personally uh, <laughs> yeah. working as a couple? I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's all of it. It's really great and it's very challenging, of course. But we like to say we designed our life. And so we live in Silver Lake. We work in Silver Lake. Our kids go to school in Silver Lake. We can walk to the office, we can walk to services. And so we've kind of compressed LA down to this very small spot and for better or worse, because there's a lot of LA to see, but it helps. And I think as a couple trying to raise a family, it's the advantages for a lifestyle. It's really helpful. I can help with the kids. She can help with the kids. Somebody can stay late. Um, and as you know, you know, we both work very hard. So in any design profession, you're working kind of around the clock. And it can be consuming, so it's helpful in that manner. The challenge is to like, you know, you have to see this person all the time. It's tough. Although we say we never talk in the office. You kind of retreat to the graphic design corner, the architecture <laughs> corner. If I get nervous, everyone, I, I walk over there and I don't know what it is. It's a funny pace around on their side. And um, the one of our employees, Katie, is always like, are you nervous? So it's, it's I do some, there's some psychology there. I'm not sure what it is. So do you ever bounce ideas off of each other for those alternate practices? Yeah. In fact, we were just writing a proposal for wayfinding and some architecture. And so we are always talking about this. I think another benefit is we'll go just have dinner and start talking about what's next or where are we going? What are we going to do? So it's a lot of, a lot of ideas. And there's so much crossover. Again, it's about space to me, whether it's 2D or 3D, it's all about space. We're kind of talking and designing the same stuff. You know, they're laying out white space is so important for graphics, which is news to me. But, you know, three-dimensional space for us is another important thing, which it might be news to them. So we're always crossing over and trying to figure out that vocabulary. And I want to talk or ask you a little bit about coming to Silver Lake in particular is a kind of distillation of LA or as you see it, because is your wife also from Los Angeles or from the Midwest? No, she's... we strangely grew up about 10 miles from each other, <laughs> wow. but we met in Los Angeles. We have a funny story, which I won't necessarily go into, but yeah, we met through friends here. And um, so there's a familiarity based to, you know, where you're from. And we know a lot of the same people. We're both from the same town. So for her, this is just as new and fresh, but she'd lived in New York and London. I'd lived in Chicago. So we'd had these different urban experiences. And then coming here has been fascinating because LA is so different from other places. I came out here in grad school in late 90s and we had these amazing all-access tours to like the VDL house, Eames house, Silvertop. We had all these amazing tours and at that moment I was sold. I was hooked. Like Silver Lake became this epicenter to me, which you kind of knew about, but all of a sudden it became real. 
And so I knew I had to head here somehow. Can you describe a little bit what you feel is the Silver Lake aesthetic? Because we talked to, you know, LA is known for having this impossibility of distillation of having this complete swath of stuff. But for whatever reason, something coming out of Silver Lake is very understandable and discreet. And it's like clear that that's the Silver Lake kind of feel. So I want to hear what you think about like how you are part of that and also like how you're influenced by it. That's a really, that's an interesting question because there is something there. And I think it has a lot to do with materiality and there's some kind of sense of budget sometimes when you're working in Silver Lake or the East Side. And I feel that there's that pared down sort of grungy, a little more DIY sort of effect that you can find in some of these projects, whether it's just doing plywood all over the place or doing nothing but drywall and some nice piece of wood, bringing in like an earthy element. And maybe it's part of like the older hipster culture of Silver Lake or the gay community where you're just trying to find your own way there's nothing. Part of the, there's a lack of program, which I find in LA, which is different than where I was sort of trained as an architect with. There's a hierarchy and a program like you work here and then you can go to there and you can work up this pyramid where to me, the pyramid in LA is in, inverted, where it's kind of open-ended when you get here. You don't start at the bottom, but you start at a huge wide rung. And so you have to find your way. And part of finding your way is probably being creative with materials or space. And I think it's just a lot of people land in Silver Lake and have that same kind of aesthetic and quality to the thought. On an earlier podcast, we spoke with Barbara Bester, who's kind of very enthusiastic and very forthcoming with her idea of what Silver Lake design is. And I think it's really interesting to kind of try to distill that in the entire sphere of Los Angeles and then try to relate it back out to the city. So what other projects are you working on right now and how are you finding your contribution to like LA urbanism? We're working on a restaurant beer garden adjacent to the LA River, which we're thrilled about because it's part of this Silver Lake. It's part of Frogtown and it's part of the revitalization of the LA River which is what it's been for so long. And so we want to offer this experience and place for people to go that's outdoors and next to the river and has a Silver Lake quality to it where it's not going to be too, it's not going to be over the top. There's not going to be a lot of fanciness to it. We're just going to be planting a lot of great materials, using a lot of wood, doing natural earthy things that bring that kind of our aesthetic to the river. And so we hope that it's part and fits into this Silver Lake thing. It's a tough question because I don't know if I really have defined Silver Lake as maybe because you're in it so much, you don't really see it the same way. But there's a lot of amazing architects, you know, right here, about 10, I can think of just all lined on Hyperion and Rowena. It's interesting, too, because when you think of Los Angeles development, a lot of attention is paid to downtown. But I think that the demographics that are moving into downtown aren't necessarily the same as the ones that we're investing the most architectural importance into. And I think there's a lot of talk about going on, well, this isn't just my opinion, but there's a lot going on around river development and trying to make that into a real asset for LA, which before it was kind of like a, a blight, more or less. It was not something that you wanted to attract people to. So I, I love the idea of any project that is trying to engage multiple areas around the river, all with the river as the pivot point. Yeah, we're lucky too. This This project is at Fletcher and Ripple right at the river. And it's the epicenter in a way of three neighborhoods because Frogtown or Elysian Valley is just to the south or east. Silver Lake is just to the west and Atwater is just to the north. Those are the three corners that touch this property. And so we've reached out in all directions and, and got a feel and vibe and sense from each community of what's 
what they want out of this. And it's been an important piece to fill because it's right now it's just an industrial zone. It's it was an auto body dealer and was you've everyone's driven past it and no one's noticed and hopefully we'll give them something to look at and a place to go. But so it's important because you're connecting neighborhoods and the river to the larger sense of Los Angeles, which it's all coming. And so we just we feel like we're starting that so you also live in Silver Lake in a house that you designed with yes. with your wife, is that yep. correct? And you've also designed the office that yes. you work out of. So that's not only a whole universe of your own creation that you're operating in, but what was it like to kind of balance the residential life and the professional life in that way? Yeah, that's it's difficult. The house was all consuming and we were building it at a time when it was tough. It was 2009 and 10 and took a year and a half to get a loan for the construction and no one was lending and all these there's a litany of stories where there's all these challenges, but to balance the professional and the house is the career versus like building a home is tough because you want to put all your energy into this house, but there's a point where you just can't and you have to still focus on running a business or bringing in clients and creating the work that you said you would do. So it was a tough balance to get it done. And then, you know, if you're working with your wife, it's, you know, you see things differently or, or the same. And I think we were very successful at it because our eyes are similar and the quality of nature of what we're trying to do is really similar. But then designing the office is, it's, it's all like the same aesthetic and it's, it's fun though. It's a lot of fun. How do you like working with yourself as your own client as opposed <laughs> to other clients? Uh, it's a breeze. Uh, clients can be tough, but um, it's hard in a sense because you, you know, a client tells you what they want and then you take that in and you give them that plus you want to add something. So we're always trying to add more, give them more than what they're asking for. But you kind of want to go as far as you possibly can. But then you have limits of budget or zoning or some other filter that's going to slow you down. And so it's really difficult because your mind, you know, sky's the limit for your own home. But then you have to still follow all the rules that all your clients have to follow. So it's in a way it's harder. How would you describe your work? Like what are some of the beliefs or values that you bring into your work? I think it all starts with space. There's so much importance for us is built on space and what you're creating and sort of the flow or the, the experiential component of what you're inhabiting. So if if you walk into a home, even residentially, you want to give people a sense of space. I had a client recently just said, I just want to walk in and go, ah, I was like, I know exactly what you're saying. That's what we want. We just want you to go in and feel good. So that's like proportions, colors, light, air. These are all the things that are sort of the byproduct of just the idea of space. So for us, it's it comes down to that. And then pared down, creating like a really interesting space with a great view, but only one small element that makes it unique, whether it's a material like a piece of wood that's natural or just good to look at or feel or sit on or something. Can you talk about an example of, of that one element in a recent project that you've done? We introduced some blue tile in a very white space. And basically we're running out of budget. We're running out of things that we can actually introduce to the project. So in a small area on the floor, we put a lot of money into a really great tile. The rest of it's just kind of white box. But that tile is so impactful and people love it and they respond to it and they look around and they want to walk on it. And so that's the kind of thing. It's like a trick in a way. So how do you find the tricks around budgets or codes and things? So that's one example. I think another would be um, the back to space is we designed this addition to a home in Echo Park and there were many limits 
based on the zoning and how high or how big we could build and the setbacks. So we just didn't have a lot of space to make it very big. So we raised it very as high as we could. We had about a 15 foot ceiling in a pretty small bedroom, but that sense of volume gave it some impact that was different and better than what it was if it were just at a eight or nine foot ceiling. So you're based in Silver Lake, which I guess could be considered the epicenter of gentrification in Los Angeles, it's spreading in, in all directions. Um, have you had to deal with issues of gentrification in your own work? Yeah, I think back to the restaurant and beer garden, we've definitely felt that from the neighborhood. Elysian Valley is a old neighborhood. It's hasn't changed a lot. It's on the river. It's really a beautiful place. And they're sensing this change that's coming. And so naturally they see us and want to know what we're up to, how we're going to do it, what's the ramifications of what you're doing. And for us, it's the approach has always been to show that we're going to somehow interject what we're doing, but in a thoughtful, careful manner. So for example, we didn't tear down the original structure. Uh, we could have, and might have even been better to, because it's, it's just an old steel building, light framing, and it's got holes in it, and it's just there's nothing much to it. But it's got a really interesting aesthetic. So for us, we could grab onto that. And then also we could show the community we're not just here to tear down and build new and tell you what we want to do. So we listened and we want to know, well, how does that affect you? So we also called it Salazar's, which is, well, we didn't, but the owner did, which was the name of the owner in the auto body shop. It was Salazar. So we've like kept some things in place that will be recognizable to the community, whether it's visual or just the name of it. And then we're doing a hotel conversion in Hollywood, the Villa Carlota, and it's a historic building. And so it has a lot of great history and it's been part of the neighborhood for years almost. And gentrification is tough in that sense because the idea is to convert it to a boutique hotel, which I would say the greater community is up for. And whether it's the need for hotel rooms in Hollywood, as that's also expanding and growing, or the need for a new place for the residents around there to use, whether it's a restaurant or just to have a place to go. And But to try and move tenants out of it just for the sake of change is a tough issue to deal with. And there's a legal side to it, and you can do something. There's in Los Angeles, there's something called the Ellis Act, which you can evict tenants for a fee, basically. But the, it doesn't really speak to the moral issue of it. And so how do you do that? And it's not easy. So do you offer people more money? Do you let them stay? So gentrification is really tough as change happens for people to accept or live through. So how do you approach that as a designer? Because often these decisions are made by developers or they're just a form of evolution through inevitable development. But as a designer, are you able to implement approaches that might, you know, help ease that transition? I think for us, we've never just come in and said, this is what you have to do. You know, this is our thing. This is what you, this is the best thing for this project. So we have to listen, you know, we have, we have a developer to listen to, we have communities to listen to, we have the city to listen to, we have our own aesthetic that we want to listen to. And so it's a balance. And we, we tend to keep intact, like at the hotel, it's a historic building anyway, so there's only so much we can do. But we didn't go crazy with any new components, whether it was on the roof or in the courtyard. We tried to maintain the sensibility that was always there, but in a fresh new way. So we're introducing maybe a different furniture type or a little flair of some kind of material as much as we can in, within the historic build out. So we're trying to be to give a nod back to that building because it, it's, it's amazing just in its own state. It's a beautiful building. So we have to listen. And we, I think we pride ourselves on listening to people and trying to understand what the core is, what they want. So I know that you're hiring currently. <laughs> yes, we are. 
Maybe you could talk a little bit about when you're looking for new talent, what are the characteristics in a person or, or the, the skills that you look for? That's a, that's a good question. I, you know, because everyone's different. Cleo and I talk about, we just, I mean, it's a small business. So we have, want to have a shared vision. And so, you know, we have our vision and we're going to go where we can go. And we're even just, we're not sure where we're going. We're just kind of going along and trying to find out what we want to become. But we have visions and we want people to share that vision. And when you're eight people, you know everybody and you want someone to buy into that vision. And so they can fit into that because, you you know, it's hard to... I've worked for big companies. I've worked for small companies and they're very different places. And the fact that we know everyone and we're all kind of in each other's lives, we want to find people who share that vision, but also, you know, want to give to us and we give back to them, whether it's time or better pay or something. We're just trying to find a good fit for the vision. Personality is big too, because again, there's only eight people. It's four graphic, four architecture. So the personalities is, you know, everyone's got to get along to some point. What is the culture like at the office? I'd say it's pretty loose. We work hard. We like to say, Cleo worked in London and she um, worked for Saatchi and Saatchi and they would go to Germany and give these presentations and be complaining about in London how they did these all-nighters and the Germans were like, well, you're clearly not very efficient <laughs> if you can't get your work done in eight hours. So we're like, oh yeah, that's it, that's it. Because, you know, we I was trained in a way that you work, you just work and someone's going to push you and push you and push you and you're going to do, I remember working on a library project in Chicago and I think we worked for like three months every day. You know, and you just didn't have a break and you kind of lose track of time. It's almost like you're jet lagged or something. And that was fun in a way. But somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, I don't really want that to be the culture of my office. So we encourage people to take time, even if it's unpaid, to say, like, I know you've worked really hard. Go take a day or do something. Or we encourage people to travel. Or if you want to take four weeks of vacation, we're open to that if there's a way to fit it in. So we want to push people. Again, it goes back to the vision. I think if you're all invested in it and you're seeing it in a certain way, then everyone's going to work hard and have fun doing it. So we want to promote a little looseness too, because we all going to work somewhat hard. Does everyone in the office have an opportunity to get involved in different projects, even if it's outside of their own specialty? Yes, definitely. Maybe not in a very formal way, but we'd say it's kind of a flat structure where there might be Cleo and I, but we want to encourage people to think of it as flat so that they can take responsibility or chime in. If they have an idea, please bring it to the table. We're wide open to hear. You know, like and like my not a all our ideas aren't always the best ideas and you might be shredding things, but we want, we encourage people to really speak up and take control of their own path in the office because we want those ideas to come out because everyone's got ideas. And a lot of them are so different than what you're thinking about that it might be the right idea. You know, you might think, oh, I got it. I got this. I got this. I know exactly what we should do. And then five rounds in, you're like, no, this isn't, that wasn't right. That was a dead end. So yeah, everyone in our office has a pretty good shot at designing the way they want to work in the office. We think that's a pretty big asset. Like we've read some things where, you know, we want to invest also back to the employee. We're not in this just to make money. It's not who we are. We want to design good things. We want to do the right thing. We want to have fun doing it. And so we know we have to offer people a place. And part of that investment is back to them, whether it's money or time or opportunity. We have to give back to them because that's the best way to grow. That's how we see it. So are are there any exciting projects on the boards that you can talk about that we can look forward to? Soon? Yeah, we have a really great, 
I can't say who it is, but we have a really, we have two really cool clients and we're doing two homes for one of them. It's they're we're so excited for it since Silver Lake too. So it's local. It's a challenge because it's on a hill, but they're amazing clients and they have really good taste. And, and then the beer garden, which is the restaurant on the river, we're just thrilled. It's under construction. So it should be open this summer. We'll hope to see you there. Oh, let us know when it opens. We'll definitely be there. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to hopefully have some work uh, of yours that we can share in the, uh, in the show notes of this, of this episode. So for those of, of you guys listening, you can take a look at some of Project M Plus's work. And uh, thanks a lot for coming in and talking Thank with you. us today. Thanks for coming in. All right. Well, that was our talk with uh, McShane Murnane. A lot of these issues that he brought up were fairly familiar to Amelia and I being in Los Angeles. How did you guys take the the interview coming from the other side of the country? I like their work. Um, I, what I especially like is um, they seem to be doing something that I've been wanting to do um, in my own on my own path, which is to create, to have a the 2D and a 3D side. So judging, looking at their website and hearing them talk about how they interact as an office, I definitely appreciate that kind of work as a firm. So very much interested in that. And what I really appreciate about their work is that it seems to be very rooted in California and um, very different. Each project seems looks very different than the next. And so it doesn't settle into something that's readily identifiable with them. So I thought it was a really good conversation. Enjoyed hearing it. I'm dealing with some traumatic gentrification issues myself right now. So that was kind of hard for me to listen to. It's a very difficult subject. But I will just point out that uh, I had a conversation this last weekend with Josh Kagerstahl and Janice Shimizu, who teach in Muncie, and they moved from L.A. to Muncie. And we were talking about Silver Lake and how it had sort of been the first place that became gentrified. And Amelia and Paul, you guys can probably remember all the names, but it like, okay, Silver Lake happened and then it moved to Echo, Echo Park. Park and then to Highland, Highland Park, Park and, and then to Glassell yeah. Park. Yeah. Which is way up the Eagle Arroyo. Rock, yeah. Right, right. And it's, you know, it's happening obviously faster on the coasts, both of them, than it is in the middle, but it is happening in the middle as well. And I'm, I'm dealing with it right now in my city in a very personal way related to my husband's business that is incredibly traumatic to be on the wrong side of it, frankly. So, but you know, nothing, nothing against McShane. I mean, the interview was great. And I love, I also love how he runs his practice. There was only one question that I really regretted not asking him. And that was uh, like, what's up with McShane as a first name? Yes. <laughs> yeah. We never got around to that. We should have asked that first thing. He was a great guy. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to go to that bar along the LA river that should be opening this summer. Yeah. So endorsements. Who's got endorsements this week? I have an endorsement that actually is related to our conversation with McShane in regards specifically to that beer garden project, actually. The neighborhood that is taking place in, in Frogtown, which is this tiny, tiny neighborhood um, adjacent to the LA River, just northeast or so of Dodger Stadium in LA. They are undergoing a very crazy, very, Don, I'm sure to many residents would also call it traumatic, developmental phase shift that things there have always been kind of poorly taken care of. There's a lot of public works projects that don't function the way they should. It's also a high area of home ownership. A lot of people live there and have lived there for a really long time. And so it's a very rooted community and it's one of the major plot points in LA's kind of difficult developmental progress as it's going on. And a good friend of mine, 
around a year ago, was very interested in this progress that was happening or this this change that was happening in Frogtown and started to investigate what was going on within the community and how developers were interfacing with the community. And she was telling me about, she was going to all these different community meetings and meetings with developers. And she was going to research a piece that she eventually was going to write um, about this change going on in Frogtown. And finally, that piece has come out. It's in the Los Angeles Review of Books. It's called The Fight for Frogtown. And it's an amazing, very, very specific, very LA nitty gritty explanation of what is happening on the ground in in between the developers, the community partners, the actual community people about how they're trying to leverage and change this area that that isn't necessarily going to change, but just how it will happen and who will it affect adversely is still very much unclear. And the article does not shy away from specific wonkery. It is very much like gives you a good picture of the reality of being in one of these meetings and the, the, these difficult community meetings. And also, I should say that one of the community partners and people who are working with the community and kind of going back and forth between developers in the community in Frogtown, which if you are a listener to the podcast, you might remember, is Elizabeth Timmy. Her firm, L.A. Moss, was one of the partners who was involved in trying to work with the community to, to understand the developmental needs of the area. And so that's how I first got aware of Timmy was with her work in Frogtown. Um, and so this piece kind of just, if you're at all interested in housing development, urban gentrification, Los Angeles, riverfront development, this this article is like incredibly helpful and a really good litmus test for what's happening on right, what's happening right now and a good um, indication of, of what may actually come. So that's my endorsement for the week. Ken, do you have an endorsement? Yeah, I, I think um, I want to endorse that piece on the on the neck about the Pulaski Skyway. The likely, it's a likely possibility, or it's a likely that I will drive over that Skyway Friday <laughs> on my way to Hoboken. Can you periscope it? <laughs> <laughs> Please do. I, I will. Per, I will periscope it. It is one of the more fascinatingly ugly structures in New Jersey, amongst um, many other ugly structures in that area. Um, it's probably a bridge that if Chris Christie were to get on it. Um, it would would probably collapse. Oh, He's looking darn. a little trimmer these days. <laughs> yeah, that's fake. Or is, or is that a metaphorical uh, collapse? <laughs> but, you know, this this particular bridge is the same type of bridge or the Skyway is constructed of the same in the same way that the bridge that the I-35W bridge in, in, in Minneapolis, the one that collapsed in 2007. So very similar construction. And this is a massive, it is a, a ribbon of steel that is entangled in very, very difficult areas of that of that state. I try not to drive over that too much because it actually dumps you right into the Holland Tunnel. And it's not very fun when you're like, usually you get on that bridge, that Skyway from Newark. So whatever you can do to, if you're leaving Newark to, you know, you're trying to get into Hoboken, you usually have to take that Skyway. But it's interesting because it crosses the New Jersey Turnpike. And there's a, I distinctly remember being in this particular lane when you're going north on the New Jersey Turnpike, or I think even on the southbound side as well, where it is so low over the highway that you swear to Christ that that bridge, you're going to actually hit in, a, in like a car that you're going to hit some part of the structure <laughs> because it is so low. In fact, they actually had the lower portion to do some uh, some work on that area of the, I think on the turnpike. So the lower portion or just to get be able to do some of that work, but it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was interesting to, to see this piece come up of me flying out there this week. So. so endorsement by way of drawing attention where attention is desperately needed. Yeah, I think, you know, I think this goes to what we've been talking about over, you know, these past few months. I think there's an expectation by most people in this country that things that are built, you know, 60 years ago just take care of themselves. 
and that tax money shouldn't go to pay for things that we actually need to do and need to have in order to have a functioning economy. And here's a, a great instance of a, of a bridge that's way outlived its usefulness and should be taken down and replaced with something that, that will give us something that is um, safer to drive on and is more functionally usable by, you know, we're not getting rid of trucks to deliver goods anytime soon. So this is really a really a sore spot for a lot of people. And it, when they work on this bridge, it is ridiculously difficult to get around. You have to go way out of your way to get away from this bridge if you're in the Newark area. So it's a bit of a challenge. So I was going to make a snarky comment about the fact that we have plenty of money to spend on private art museums like the Broad, but not to spend on infrastructure. But it turns out that Pulaski's taking a $1.2 billion improvement project right now. It's costing $1.2 billion, and the Broad only cost $140 million to build. So that's like, that's pocket change. That's, you know, it's not that, that big a deal. But I was <laughs> going to endorse Amelia's wonderful piece, What Makes an Artless Museum, about the Broad Museum in L.A., and it's such a, I called it on Twitter, it's such a meaty article. There's so much to discuss in it, starting with uh, Amelia. You want to tell everyone what the, what the museum <laughs> looks like to you? Well, to me, the Broad looks like a contraceptive sponge. And this was, <gasps> I, and there was so many, and the reason why I felt it was even necessary to say that is not just because I think people would actually want to read an article after a claim like that is made, but but because people love calling the museum like different things. And I even saw a, a and not to hijack your endorsement, Donna, but I saw a um, no, it's fine. a rather prominent art critic respond to one of the initial renderings of the Broad were released. She said, oh, they should sell waffle iron shaped like the Broad in the gift shop because it looks like a <laughs> waffle iron thing. And I just like, I was seeing so many what I thought of as like somewhat inane and like ridiculous analogies as to what it was. I was like, well, I'll just take those full throttle <laughs> and go with the contraceptive sponge. They can have a contraceptive sponge vending machine in the bathrooms. As, yeah, <laughs> as, you know. What, what behavior will that encourage? <laughs> they can be shaped like the Broad Museum. I think it's a very accurate analogy, but I think, you know, your article actually goes into our human tendency to look at things and say, oh, that cloud looks like a duck or whatever, and how that relates to art and how that relates to art as experience versus art as an object. And I just think it's a fantastic piece, so much interesting stuff in it. And the fact that we can now refer to whether or not art in the museum is sponge worthy or not is just for, for those of us raised on the Seinfeld show, that makes the, the museum far more valuable than it would have been if we couldn't make that uh, that analogy. So thank you for that. And the whole article, <laughs> like I said, is fantastic. Really talks about so many different topics around just the building itself, art, urbanism, how we view things. It, it, it's a beautiful article. So really nice job on that. So that's my endorsement. I really like how you described this kind of self-consciousness of being in a museum without any art. And it's like, what do I look at now? And I could just imagine being in that, in that position and, and being like a little uncomfortable. It's like, okay. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> it was a great piece. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you. So uh, yeah, I have a quick uh, endorsement. It is a, um, a piece that Julia just wrote about an article that was posted on Cranes, New York. The title of that piece being on our next title is scarcity of intermediate architects translates to higher salaries. Basically, it's just confirming what we've been saying a lot around here, that intermediate architects with uh, five to seven years experience are incredibly sought out right now. And because of the lack of, of architects that kind of fit that, that description, salaries are going up between 10 and 15%. One thing I've noticed that I just find unfortunately typical of architects is that, you know, even with good news like this, 
everybody, there's so many people that just want to focus on the negativity. It's like, oh, when is this bubble going to burst? Like, oh yeah, you know, this is really going <laughs> to yeah, last. Yeah. I heard this 10 years ago. You know, just enjoy it while it lasts. Try to get a great job, you know, keep it. Things are good right now. Things will not be this good in the future. I don't know wh whether that is next year or in five years, but it's good right now. Is there anything really to complain about? So thank you for that, Paul. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> You know, so you have people on the website talking about we need to shut down schools of architecture for 10 years in order to, <laughs> there's a, there's a, apparently the, there's a lot more supply out there than these writers of these articles or the, or that you're not seeing apparently the, the invisible supply and the, with lack of demand, which is, you know, so this piece just kind of points to that fallacy. And I pointed out something that, you know, it's a small thing, but somebody here locally was looking for a drafter and going to pay a thousand dollar signing bonus for a drafter. I mean, that, you know, it's not a lot of money, but for the Midwest, a thousand dollars for a drafter for a signing bonus, that's a sign. And, you know, if we can't get five to seven year people to, uh, if there aren't any, they don't exist, it makes it difficult for people who are not in that mid-career professional, as a mid-career professional like myself, to actually move out of that phase. I'm, I'm still doing construction documents and I've been doing this, you know, I've been, I, I'm, I've been an architect for over seven years now and I've been doing construction documents for, you know, way past 15 years. So I can't move on to the next phase and take on the next level of responsibility if we can't find people to fill in those gaps that I leave or people like me leave, because then what do we do? That's where I think things will start to turn and salaries will start to go up because that pressure on me to, you know, do the documents, do the construction administration, you know, do some marketing stuff, do this, do, you know, that's just going to destroy me as an individual. Uh, forget about the late nights that I talked about before. That's, that's, that's my own kind of gift to myself. You know, so I have this other job and I have to take care of that. And if I, we can't find, you know, we're having a tough time in my own office filling out a five to seven position in our office right now. So that's a challenge. You know, I like, I want to be my, have my hands in it, but I, I need to get, I need to get away from some of it as well. Well, one thing that young, you know, recent graduates should take from this is that it is an opportunity right now to jump ahead. Because if you have the skills and, and the talent and the energy to work hard, you can get a, a job that you may not be normally ready for, you know, in five to seven years, if, if you if you can prove that that you can take that kind of position on. Because in the article in Cranes, it did, it was interviewing some architects that were indicating that they were hiring younger architects that showed a lot of potential for positions that would have normally required more experience. Yep. Baptism by fire. Can I say one more thing? Just winter's coming. Winter is coming. <laughs> Thanks, Cassandra. <laughs> <laughs> so is summer, though. We're like three days away. Or you just moved to California where that is meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's another episode. Thanks to everybody for listening. You can send questions, comments, suggestions, as always, to connect at arconnect.com, Twitter, hashtag Arconnect Sessions. And please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes if you listen to the podcast and subscribe. And if you don't subscribe and you like the podcast, subscribe. It automatically goes on your phone without even thinking about it. So we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Great. Have a good Thanks. week. Bye. Bye. Bye.